petition was Barbara Stanwyck, my one of my favorite friends, was in Sorry, Wrong Number. And you had Irene Dunn and I Remember Mama. And you've got um, uh, Bergman and Joan of Arc, and, and, and particularly Olivia in Snake Pit, and me. Now, who would you think would win that? It wouldn't be me, you know? <laughs> so we're sitting there, and the announcement is made, and I just keep sitting. I didn't hear it. So Walt punched me in the, in the, in the arm, and he said, it's you. And I said, oh, oh, oh. So, and I got up, and my purse was on my lap, and it fell, and everything went, phew, all the way down to the footlights. So I got up there, had nothing prepared. There was no way in my mind that I could have won this, you see. I was delighted to be nominated, but I had no ambition, no thought of winning. So the only thing I could say was that I got it for keeping my mouth shut, so why don't I just do it again? And walked off, and thunderous applause because they'd been listening to so. Oh, I got to thank this one and my mother in Arkansas, and blah blah blah, etc. And that was the end of it. You're listening to Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Jane Wyman's career was evidence that the studio system worked. If a contract player stuck it out, paid their dues, and built their craft, they would become durable stars built to last. Ultimately, Jane's big break came about from her training, but also her innate gift for nuance in performance. She never played anything broad or one note. She created dramatic turns in comedy and lifted heavy drama with subtle moments of light release. The icing on the cake for Wyman was that her Oscar came immediately following her split from Ronald Reagan. By the end of the 1940s, Jane was at the top of her profession and a favorite among critics and audiences. As a girl in Missouri, Jane had taken dancing lessons from the father of Leroy Prinz, the famous Hollywood choreographer. Jane's mother had attempted to get her into pictures when she was only eight years old, without any luck. But when Jane was 18, she used her hometown affiliation with the dance director's father to gain a spot in the chorus line in Hollywood. Based on the first decade she spent in Hollywood, the rest of Jane Wyman's career might have been difficult to predict. She began working in the film colony as an uncredited dancer. Jane's picture debut, The Kid from Spain in 1932, cast her among the Golden Girls, next to Paulette Goddard, Betty Grable, and Toby Wing. Jane was really, though, just another flashy platinum blonde who looked great in a chorus line. Then in 1936, she met William Demarest, who was then a popular talent agent before his own acting career really took off. The agent approached her in a restaurant with a stale line about how she ought to be in pictures. Jane agreed with them and mentioned that she just so happened to not be a stranger to a soundstage. Demarest introduced Jane to Carol Lombard, which led to a part with one line in My Man Godfrey. The line was cut in the editing room, but it still gave Jane the chance to add a featured player to her screen credits. Demarest then set up a meeting with Warner Brothers casting director Max Arno, who offered Jane a contract with the studio. Arno sent her to the B unit in Warner's under producer Brian Foy. The head of the Bees decided that Jane's voice was too high and ordered speech lessons, advising Jane to lower her voice by three octaves. Jane immersed herself in the usual contract player six-day work schedule. 
which also included publicity shots, promotional duties, and constant worry about her option being picked up after six months. Production in the B unit was even more taxing than the schedule for the A's. Jane appeared in 11 pictures in 1936 and 9 in 1937. 20 pictures in two years was common for new contract players, especially in Warner's, where they throw any picture at you and hope to develop your talent and feed the production schedule. Warner's typecast Jane as a ditzy blonde in pictures such as Stage Struck, starring Dick Powell and Joan Blondell. Jane played a hopeful starlet who told Dick Powell during an audition as she rattled off her accomplishments, my name is Bessie Fufnick. I ride, dive, swim, imitate wild birds, and play the trombone. Dick Powell later remarked that Jane had star quality from the start. She had presence, that indefinable magic that happens for some people when they step in front of a camera. Glenda Farrell also noticed Jane's potential and made a wisecrack about how she would have to watch her back because of competition from the new girl. Jane did take over for Glenda in the last installment of the Torchy Blaine franchise. Early on in her Hollywood career, Jane had a mantra she used in front of the mirror each morning. Look out for yourself and don't let anyone put anything over on you. Unfortunately, Jane didn't extend the mantra to her love life, and she fell for Ronald Reagan, her co-star in Brother Rat in 1938. She later joined Reagan on Luella Parsons' Whistle Stop Tour. It was a publicity stunt that Luella whipped up to convince William Randolph Hearst that she was still a force to be reckoned with in the press. Crowds came out in droves for the tour, which consisted of five shows a day with the new contract players. Rising stars like Jane Reagan and Susan Hayward did little skits while Luella perched on a stage as a tastemaker, filing items for her column. Reagan and Jane gave Luella the first scoop on their wedding plans, which also happened during the tour. Luella lived for exclusives and rewarded the couple by hosting their wedding reception. Like many contract players, Jane experienced her big breaks for her career outside of her home studio. Loan outs were a big source of revenue for the studios, which they used when they had a production gap, lack of scripts, or wanted to use a strategic buildup for contract players. Warners had loaned Jane to Paramount for Princess O'Rourke. Jane was cast as the funny sidekick to top-build Olivia de Havilland, a part which showcased a new potential in Jane's career. Writer-producer Charles Brackett was struck by her performance in one scene where she dances with Jack Carson and Princess O'Rourke. Jane was cast as comic relief, but in the scene with Carson on the dance floor, Jane added an extra depth. During the scene, Jane elevates the laughs to a more serious tone. Her husband is about to be called for duty overseas. Jane expresses vulnerability, knowing she was going to have to say goodbye to him and be alone, and then tops it off with a brave face. She conceals her worry for his sake, and Jane's instinctive gift for subtle emotional nuance 
caught the attention of the Hollywood Dream Team, Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Brackett sent Jane a copy of The Lost Weekend, a novel by Charles Jackson, when she was in New York. Jane had trouble seeing herself in the role, which was later built up for her in the studio script. Brackett felt Jane was just right to play a gal full of life who would make audiences believe she would sleep on a doorstep to look out for the man she loved. When production started on The Lost Weekend, Brackett and Jane squabbled about her hair tests. Brackett argued for a different part in Jane's hair. In his view, a new part in her hair gave her face a gravity and a beauty that an audience wouldn't suspect from the cutie pies she had been playing, playing on screen. At first, Jane reacted with, against his preference with excuses about the shape of her face and so forth and why it didn't suit her. But then she acquiesced. When she later viewed the rushes, she said to Brackett, I like that girl. You were right. Based on Jane's performance in The Lost Weekend, MGM director Clarence Brown cast her to co-star with Gregory Peck in The Yearling, which brought her first nomination for Best Actress. Warner did not class Jane with his dramatic stars. The studio had Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Ida Lupino, Barbara Stanwyck on Freelance, plus Alexis Smith and Eleanor Parker. Jane was typecast in light comedy, another Eve Arden. But now that she had received an Oscar nomination, Warner finally realized he had a first-rate dramatic actress under contract, and suddenly he scrambled to find a good drama for Jane while he had had her part extended in reshoot shoots for Night and Day, the Cole Porter biopic starring Cary Grant. Even though he was searching for a serious drama, Jack Warner resisted making Johnny Belinda. From his point of view, who would go and see a picture where the leading lady never says a word? You might recall he once bristled, who wants to see a picture where a dame goes blind, about Betty Davis and Dark Victory. Oftentimes, the studio boss had trouble identifying a hit when he saw one. If it weren't for the intrepid producer, Jerry Wald, Johnny Belinda might never have been made. Wald was a woman's picture visionary. He's the one who gave Joan Crawford her best scripts in Warner's. Wald began his career in Hollywood as a screenwriter in Warner's when he was only 20 years old, and by 30, he was a top producer. He was constantly scouting for stories. He subscribed to 73 magazines and newspapers. He paid a number of readers to prepare reports on novels and plays and keep on top of everything new that was published. Wald once used a newspaper analogy to describe his role in the studio. Warner is the publisher who determines studio policy and delegates money and authority. Steve Trilling is the managing editor, and I am in the position of city editor, supervising a staff of writers and artists, originating ideas, and handing out assignments, he said. Wald argued for the box office appeal of Johnny Belinda, writing memos to the front office with a clear sense of exasperation. 
He asked why did he need to take everything that he had written in the past about, say, Mildred Pierce and Serenade and simply substitute Johnny Belinda? Why didn't they recognize that he could find a good script and he knew a good story when he saw one? Jerry argued that to each his own that was currently playing did huge box office and was an Oscar winner because it was a pure woman's picture. When the front office didn't care about making stories for women, Jerry Wald took on a crusade. So he advocated for women's pictures and Warner's and to the rest of the executives. The executives, like Jack, often believed that a picture needed glamour or romance to succeed, and they weren't too interested in making stories about women to begin with. But back in 1938, Jerry had written the screenplay for Brother Rat, the picture that lit the Wyman-Reagan romance. And he kept Jane in his thoughts, knowing he would find something perfect for her to do someday that showed off her dramatic skills. Initially, Jean Negalesco had been assigned to direct the Errol Flynn picture, Adventures of Don Juan, but he disagreed with the action star over the character development. Negalesco felt Don Juan was essentially a tragic figure brought to ruin by beautiful women, but Errol saw it the opposite way. Perhaps it was some extension of his own history with women he had in store for his part. Warner's biggest male star was an unabashed love em and leave em type, and that's how he pictured Don Juan. After a stalemate, Flint went to Warner and demanded a new director. Warner appeased the star and then placated the director by sending him back to Jerry Walt, who handed him three scripts. Negalesco chose Johnny Belinda, which he felt was a sensitive story about the rebirth of consciousness. When it came to casting, Jerry Wald insisted on Jane Wyman for the lead. Together, producer and director had been looking at tests for a young New York actor to play the role of the doctor. But when Jack Warner looked at the test, he rejected it, saying, he doesn't talk, he mumbles. The studio boss told them to get the actor who played Dr. Kildare in the pictures. Lou Ayers had played the popular physician in the MGM franchise. The mumbler, by the way, was Marlon Brando. Charles Bickford and Agnes Moorhead joined the cast as Jane Wyman's parents. Most of the picture was shot on location in Northern California, in Fort Bragg and Mendocino. The company rallied on location, where the setting enhanced the stirring emotional core of the picture. When they weren't shooting, the cast and crew socialized with conversation, sing-alongs, and painting sessions. One night, they discussed the next day's shoot, which included a big scene for Charles Bickford. The director noted in his memoir that the occasion was the only time he ever knew an actor to argue for cutting his own scene. Bickford argued that they didn't need what he was doing the next day on on, um, camera, that it was unnecessary to the story. Instead, he told the film director to instead shoot silent scenes of Jane Wyman working on the farm to set the correct mood. It was, Negulesco recalled, teamwork to remember. Negulesco 
began his career in Hollywood as a technical advisor for a rape scene in the story of Temple Drake, which I told you about in another podcast episode. Echoes from that, from the corn crib scene with Miriam Hopkins, surface and Johnny Belinda when Jane is attacked by Horace Stephen McNally in the barn. On Broadway, McNally had been cast as the doctor who is now played by Lou Ayers. Here he's the brute, and the scene uses the same kind of shadows, sharp tools on the wall, and stacks of animal feed to highlight the trapped, claustrophobic feeling Belinda has when she's suddenly attacked and raped. The musician rapist tells her, I caught a seagull once. It had the same scared look. It's chilling, as chilling as the Temple Drake scene. Jane Wyman prepared for months. She spent time in a school for the deaf, and she had an onset sort of tutor. And at one point, she spent time in the home of a young girl who was hearing impaired. Jane observed that people who can't hear listen and speak with their eyes. For her performance, she was careful, and she relies on communicating with her eyes. Jane builds in a few extra beats into her reaction time. A physician created special wax-based earplugs for Jane to wear on set to approximate hearing loss. She wore the plugs all day, she said, because she found if she took them in and out, she got headaches. Jane benefited from having a great co-star. Lou Ayers was a sensitive actor with interest in psychology and philosophy. He had once been vilified for his pacifism during the war and was only welcomed back begrudgingly into Hollywood after his brave service in the medical corps. Lou was also an avid painter, along with the director, Jean Negolescu, and actress Agnes Moorhead. Jane approached the role as a painter, shading subtle degrees into a fully developed character. One thing that stands out for me that I can imagine other stars would have done in playing the role is wrinkling their brow with deep furrows in their forehead to tell the audience that she was isolated, confused, or misunderstood. But Jane Wyman doesn't really do that. She doesn't rely on wrinkling her forehead and bringing her her eyebrows together in the center when she's in a conversation with someone. Instead, she uses those delayed reactions, this sort of lingering or trailing off when she's in the company of others to show how insular her interior life is or how she's struggling to communicate. The scene where she does use her eyebrows and forehead to appear perplexed is during the lighter scene when Lou Ayers takes her into town to see a specialist. They step off a carriage and Belinda walks up to the shop window and she stares at the bra display. They are a collection of lacy post-war bullet bras in a black and white, um, you know, uh, designs or models, even though they don't really fit the time and the place that the, the film is set. And the camera shoots them outside on the street from inside the shop. And viewers see Lou on the street trying to explain what a bra is. It's really a nice, sweet, funny moment. And then he finds the solution by just going inside and buying one of the scarves 
that's next to the bras and the window display. And Belinda is perfectly happy with that because she has a nice, silky, shiny present. I'm struck by Jane's delicate underplay in this picture, especially after she's raped, and the doctor finds her sitting next to a bunch of logs peeling potatoes. Jane's face is dirty, her hair is tangled, her sweater is torn and full of holes. She's in disarray, and her parents haven't guessed what's wrong, what's happened to her. Belinda is still locked inside that moment of trauma. She's retreated into herself, but slowly the doctor's kindness draws her out. Jane's underplay creates room for the other characters to respond. Jane, uh, Jane says little in the confrontational scene when they find out that she's pregnant and, and is expecting a child. Now, Agnes Moorhead has had a sharp tongue and is terse and bitter in the first part of the film, and it's because of her hard scrabble life of this unyielding labor and chores. She's always working around the farm. She works as hard as any man. But when she learns that Belinda is pregnant, Every motherly instinct awakens and suddenly she is emotional and vulnerable. She's distraught, protective, and argues for her daughter's well-being and protection. And Charles Bickford gives one of his best performances as Belinda's father. He rages about bringing the rapist to justice and shoves a telephone directory in Belinda's face to get her to point out the man who attacked her until Agnes pushes him off. Although the location shoot was ideal, the front office rankled. Reportedly, Jack Warner didn't like how Jane looked. He barked at Jerry Wald to call that Romanian son of a bitch and tell him to put some makeup on her. Viewing rushes at the same time of Anne Sheridan in a Western with perfect Westmore hair and makeup, Warner noted, now that's the way a star should look. Wald assured the boss he would, and then immediately ignored him. Warner also complained about the amount of background shots. Enough with the seagulls already, he groused. In Warner's view, the director was wasting money and resources. Warner sacked Negalesco before the final scene and barred him from having the final cut. The studio boss was angry. He pointed to the director and a producer. We invented talking pictures, and you two make a picture about a deaf and dumb girl. Only one thing can save it. Narration over her silent close-ups to tell the public what she's thinking. Jerry Wald persevered and argued against the narration that Warner had decreed. As luck would have it, Warner forgot about his orders, and the producer left the film intact. Once the picture wrapped, Jane took a trip to New York by herself, alone with time to think. She decided to continue living alone after being separated from Reagan on the location shoot. A reporter pounced on her for a quote the minute she arrived in Manhattan. Jane was candid in her statement, saying she was unhappy after things that had accumulated over time. She hoped they could avoid a separation, which in publicity speak means we are definitely spl splitting up. Jane was no doubt consoled by her success. Upon release, the picture was a huge critical and commercial success. 
Johnny Belinda turned out to be the biggest hit Warner's had in 1948. When Jane spoke after the premiere of Johnny Belinda, she thanked three men who meant the most to her career, Charles Brackett, Clarence Brown, and Jerry Wald. Johnny Belinda was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, including Jane for Best Actress. After the news broke, Warner attempted to smooth things over with Negalesco, the way moguls often did, by taking credit and pretending the falling out never happened, but John Negalesco never worked for Warner Studio again. In the run-up to the award ceremony, Jane was convinced somebody else would win. The competition was tough. Olivia de Havilland for Snake Pit, Barbara Stanwyck for Sorry Wrong Number, Irene Dunn for I Remember Mama, and Ingrid Bergman for Joan of Arc. Jane sat in the audience behind Irene Dunn. She recalled staring at Dunn throughout the ceremony, noting there was something about the line of her neck that convinced me she was going to win the picture, or sorry, win the prize. I was slumped low in my seat, trying to hide so I could sneak out afterwards. Looking back, Jane didn't even hear her name when it was read by the presenter Ronald Coleman. She sat stunned until Jerry Wald pushed her up from her chair. Jane looks frozen as she walks up to the stage in her white high-neck crepe gown. And her acceptance speech was brief. I accept this very gratefully for keeping my mouth shut once. I think I'll do it again. Jane's Oscar was the only win for Johnny Belinda, but Jerry Wald received the Irving Thalberg Award that year for his work as producer. Dick Powell was one of many to send a, a telegram of congratulations. He wrote, Dear Bessie Funfnick, I ride, dive, swim, imitate wild birds, and play the trombone and win Academy Awards. Wary of being typecast in melodrama, as she had been in comedy, Jane stepped back into comedy, and she followed up Johnny Belinda with A Kiss in the Dark, a criminally underrated romantic comedy with David Niven, where she plays a model who shows a rich man how to live outside his privileged bubble, often wearing short shorts, showing off her prized Corrine gams. At one point, she tells a demanding photographer, a girl can only give so much for $15 an hour, speaking for underpaid women who have reached the limit with shenanigans from the boss and everywhere. Jane signed a new contract with Warners, which reflected her present status as Oscar winner. When asked why she stayed, instead of going to MGM or another lot who would have rolled out the red carpet, Jane expressed her loyalty to the studio. In her view, Warner Brothers kept her under contract for years when she wasn't such a huge asset. And now that she was, she owed it to them to stay. In Warner's memoir, he includes a letter from his wife, Anne, who remembered when Jane wrote to the studio boss and thanked him for believing in her and giving her the chance to make good. It brought a tear to the wizened mogul's eye. Along with changes in her career that ushered in A-level stardom, Jane also gave her life a personal makeover. Jane separated and filed for divorce from third husband Ronald Reagan while Johnny Belinda was in production. 
No doubt the contrast between trying to convey the rich interior life of a woman without using any words was impossible under the strain of being married to a man who never shut up. The strange thing is, is that Jane's biographers are huge fan of Reagan's and they think that his incessant chatter is proof of his presidential calling. But to anyone else, reading stories about his speechifying is clearly grounds for divorce. Reagan wasn't an avid conversationalist. He wasn't a gifted orator. From the stories of their marriage, Ronnie had a severe lack of emotional intelligence. It's such an odd thing to read about a Hollywood actor who had so little sense of his audience in real life. Reagan talked at people. He spouted incessant monologues. He didn't care if listeners were interested or what they thought or felt on the topic. And he subjected Jane to his chatter and ham-fisted debates with his brother and SAG cronies until she finally ran for the hills. Anne Sheridan recalled a dinner with Jane and Ronnie where he gave a detailed summary of a baseball game he had just listened to. Each play in every inning he went through in great detail. Anne had no interest in baseball, but still he kept at it. June Allison and Dick Powell were great friends with Jane and Ronnie. June Allison noted that Jane once told her, don't ask Ron what time it is because he'll tell you how a watch is made. Reagan's behavior sounds like a mix of narcissism and megalomania. No wonder he sought the presidency. For years, publicity had covered the Reagans as an all-American couple. Public interest in their divorce was relentlessly fed by the columnists. Reagan might have thought he was being gallant when he credited the split to Jane's depression, which began when she suffered a miscarriage before production began on Johnny Belinda. He often said the divorce was not what he wanted. It was a choice someone else had made for him. But it sounds passive-aggressive and condescending, as though Jane didn't know her, her own mind or was incapable of making the decision. Collectively, reporters put the blame on Jane. They made her sound frivolous, as though she couldn't bear to hear her husband talking about important topics like union politics. In reality, his constant monologues were tedious and showed a lack of respect. Luella made Jane appear guilty in her columns, noting that whenever she saw her, Jane either made a hasty exit or burst into tears. Apparently, Luella never considered that Jane might be avoiding her because of the hurtful things she had published. For years after the divorce, Luella continued to speculate about the reasons for the divorce, as well as spark any rumor of a reconciliation each time Jane and Ronnie appeared together in public. Jane finally had to beg her to stop. Hedda Hopper was especially vicious, which wasn't hard to predict since Jane and Ronnie had been favorites of Luella's. Hedda wrote a doozy in Modern Screen in 1948, October issue, blaming Jane's Oscar ambitions for the breakup. Hedda clutched her pearls when she wrote, Forgotten are her safe anchors in life, her husband, and the confused kids. I'm always amused by a workaholic who chastises other women for career ambitions. After all, Hedda never put her own family first, nor did she remarry after an unhappy marriage 
and divorce to a ham actor. Sheila Graham was one of the few columnists who didn't seem to blame Jane. She noted in a 1951 photoplay article that the divorce was due to Reagan's talkativeness, as she put it. Negative publicity for a newly independent woman at the top of her profession smacks of the old double standards. For women who had done their bit during the war, kept the home fires burning, and soldiered on, as Jane did, Jane's divorce might have shown that they could now put themselves first and leave an unhappy marriage. Jane rebelled against society's expectations. And if the press wasn't calling her blinded by ambition and busting up her family, they printed stories about how she was no longer any fun now that she turned into a serious actress. Jane penned an article for a photo play called Why I've Changed, which asked that she be given the opportunity to grow into herself and expand outside her previous screen screen image. And why she hasn't become a, a humorless killjoy just because she enjoys now playing in drama. By the summer of 1949, the divorce was final. Jane had advanced to the top echelon of stars. She had a new contract which reflected her status. And she moved into the best dressing room on the lot after Betty Davis left the studio. Jane had proven her box office appeal and professional versatility. She went on to be nominated for Best Actress in 1951 for The Blue Veil, in the same year when Reagan's big picture was Bedtime for Bonzo, being upstaged by a chimp. And Jane would soon star in the gold standard melodramas for Douglas Sirk. Jane later had two hit TV series. When she starred in Falcon Crest, she was the highest paid woman in American television. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Jane Wyman, an autobiography by Joe Morella and Edward Epstein, published in 1985. Conversations with Classic Film Stars, Interviews from Hollywood's Golden Era by James Bodden and Roy Miller, published in 2015. Things I Did and Things I Think I Did by Jean Negalesco, published in 1984. It's the Pictures That Got Small, Charles Brackett on Billy Wilder and Hollywood's Golden Age, edited by Anthony Slide, published in 2014. My First Hundred Years in Hollywood by Jack Warner, published in 1965. The Glamour Factory, Inside Hollywood's Big Studio System by Ronald L. Davis, published in 1993. Stay tuned for A Star Was Born, 